My, um, my front yard has seen better days. Uh, I aspire to be one of those people in my neighborhood that has like a beautiful lawn, well manicured, lovely grass, thick and lush. I have some friends like that that have done some good work. That's not my yard. I have three boys, as many of you know, 10, 8, and 3, and most afternoons, my yard is a football field. Tackle football, always, three-year-old right in the mix with the other two. Uh, if it's not that, it's a baseball diamond, and if it's not that, it's a track because there's sprints going on. And as a result, this patch of grass at one point has become a patch of dirt. And so my yard, of all the yards on the block, is very clearly the most embarrassingly trampled yard there is. And so I've had to deal with this fact that I, you know, I'm out there, I'm the guy that's mowing, and when people come by in the, in the uh, summer, I'm literally mowing a patch of dirt, and like dirt is flying up, but I feel like I'm a homeowner, I've gotta mow this thing, so I mow the dirt because that's what I do. It's, it is trampled. And uh, I talked to the neighbor at a beautiful yard, and he said, oh yeah, yeah, Mine was like that when I had little ones at home too. Someday you'll have grass again. He's like, but when it's trampled, you just start to believe nothing will ever grow here again. And in, in many ways this morning, what we're exploring is what does it look like when, when we've just been trampled and we think maybe nothing will grow here ever again. We've been, we've been working through this series called Never Too Far, examining the genealogy of Jesus and specifically zooming in on the women that were included in Jesus' genealogy. And as we explore each of the women's stories, we're seeing these, these moments and these places and these ways where, where we're tempted to think maybe this story, maybe this person and the things surrounding them is just too far from the grace and the presence of God. Yet, Matthew, in the telling of Jesus' story, he front loads the gospel by saying, let me tell you, this is the family that, that Jesus comes into. This is the context by which the redemption of Jesus splashes on to the world. And so we've said progressively as we're moving through these stories, no matter how messy your family is, and we looked at Tamar and said, that was messy. No matter how, how messy your past is, looked at Rahab and said, that's a messy past. No matter how much suffering you have endured, circumstantial, scorched earth suffering. We looked at Ruth, who is this this righteous sufferer. And then today we come to a, a a different set of realities, a different set of circumstances with the woman that finds the, the fourth spot in Jesus's genealogy. And the truth is that that Bathsheba as a woman that was trampled, like a woman that was sinned against in a way that was painful. And I've gotta be honest, it's been this week studying this passage by looking specifically at Bathsheba. We just read to you the verses where she is specifically mentioned in the narrative. And what we're going to find is we zoom in on those verses and we think about this story with her as, the, as the, the main character for our point of emphasis this morning, trying to understand who was she and what do we learn about her. I've realized that I've, I've, I've taught this passage on multiple occasions. I've read it many times. And if I'm honest, she's always been the backdrop to the story about David, this thing that's unfolding, the sin of David. 
And when we pause and we consider it in the way that Matthew is thrusting it upon us in Matthew chapter one, he's saying, listen, this son Solomon was born by Uriah's wife in Matthew one. He's, he's front loading the fullness of this story, begging us to pay attention to this woman in the narrative. And when we do, what we see is a story of someone that was sinned against, that was trampled by power. And I just want you to hear this morning that wherever in your story you have felt trampled, and, and there's, there's plenty of those spots that we will explore, that we will consider, I just want you to hear today that if you feel far from the grace and the presence of God because of the ways you've been sinned against, would you lean in with me and pay attention to the way that the redemptive story of Jesus breaks in even here in this portion of the genealogy? So we're gonna pay attention together. If you would, look back at the text with me and we're gonna dig into what does it look like for the grace of Jesus to show up in a story where someone has been sinned against in really egregious ways. To long for and to hope for the coming of the Redeemer in that space. So what do we mean by being trampled? In essence, for, for us to make sense of the, the restoration, the longing, the anticipation of Advent, we first have to engage what does it mean that Bathsheba was trampled? Well, did you hear it? In this story, we, we, we read about this Bathsheba. We get introduced to her in, in verse three when David sins and inquires about this woman who is very beautiful and had been bathing. And it says, and uh, one that was standing there said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In verse three, this, this woman that David is taking interest in while standing on his roof and, and kind of playing the role of, of peeping Tom, as it were, and he takes interest in this woman and sends it to find out about her, what he learns is, he learns about her father, and in learning about her father, he also immediately knows about her grandfather, and he learns about her husband. And the reason is because these two names, Eliam and Uriah, are both part of his, his 30 if you're familiar with the story of David, you know that there are 30 mighty warriors that fight for him and fight for Israel. They are heroic. They are noble. They are the, kid, they are the names that kids in their front yards playing all over Israel pretend to be because these are the heroes of Israel. Bathsheba's dad and her brother are both part of the 30, or pardon me, her husband and her dad are both part of the 30 that fight for Israel and fight for David. And incidentally, Eliam is also Ahithophel's son, and David would have immediately recognized that name because, as it were, Ahithophel had been one of his great and wise sage advisors. And so he immediately knows, oh, I know all the men in this woman's story. She has been surrounded by noble and strong and wise men from the time she was born. He knows her grandfather, he knows her dad, he knows her husband, and he blows right through these warnings and he says, bring her to me. And as she is brought in, what we know is there is actually nothing in this text that gives any hint that Bathsheba was participating in this, in this sin in any way that she desired it or sought it out. All of the sin is David's in this text in the way that it's presented. If you saw that, you, you see that uh, it says that he took her in verse four. The phrase is that uh, he took her, she came to him and he lay with her. 
And then she returned to her house and she sent message to him that she said, I'm pregnant. So her husband's off at war and now she's just found out that she's pregnant from this one night stand with the king. A very desperate position to be in for this woman, trying to figure out how to make sense of that. And in verse 26 and 27, the word comes that her husband has died. We don't know what all Bathsheba is aware of at this point, but it says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she may be thinking, wow, that's quite the coincidence that right after I told the king that I was pregnant, my husband is dead. She's probably trying to connect the dots there. Maybe it's not too hard to do so. But it says she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Do you see that the text is saying, here's a woman that was taken, that was lain with, that then had her husband killed. She was mourning over him, lamenting the loss of this husband. And then that time probably would have been a week. There's probably been a specific week set aside for grieving. And right at the tail end of it, the man that was responsible for the death of her husband takes her into his home. And incidentally, David's taking her into his home would have been a display to the community of generosity and grace. It's kind of like last week when Boaz took Ruth. This would be the idea of a king saying, for one of my mighty warriors who has a wife who never had a child, I am going to tend to Uriah's family line by propagating it, by taking his wife into my home. It would have, from the outside looking in, looking like a very noble act by David. And in the middle of the story is this Bathsheba, who has just been trampled down in such an egregious way. Can you imagine mourning the loss of your husband and the day that the grief ended, you're ushered into the home of the man that was responsible for his death to become his new wife and wondering, will anyone ever know? I can't say it. I live in the king's house now. My husband is gone and Will anyone ever know what it's been like to be me? You feel it? I don't know that I've ever fully kind of gone into this text for the purpose of, of trying to inhabit Bathsheba's space. But what we know to be true is that this would be a very painful path to walk. And, and this kind of trampling, it, it happens... In, in our stories in a, on a broad spectrum. Some of you hear the contours of this story and it strikes a deep chord in your past or even in your present where you go, yeah, I know what it is to have someone in power take advantage. Like, I know what it is for someone who's supposed to be a safe place to wound. And I'll tell you, it's, it's like this glorious burden in my calling, and I mean it, it is glorious and it is heavy that I get to be invited into the place of suffering. I count it as a privilege as part of my calling. I, 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 don't, I don't ever view it as, as a hindrance. Like it means a lot to me when someone invites me in, but, but I'm invited into these places of heaviness. I've heard a lot of these stories. And a lot of people that live in this community where there was someone that was supposed to be a safe place and they took advantage. You know, it's like, that physical or emotional or sexual abuse from someone that was supposed to be safe. 
And all of a sudden, a person in that situation starts to think, this may be a defining moment for the rest of my life. This is going to shape the way my story unfolds. And, and there's this sense in which, in the secret, it, we begin to wonder, will anyone ever know? Will anyone ever know the way that power has worked against me in this place? Some of you know that pain all too well. I will say this sort of suffering, this sort of sin happens on a wide spectrum. Some of you may say, I have friends or I've heard stories, but I I don't know if I've ever inhabited that space. But all of us know what it is to be wounded by the sin of another. You know, maybe in a less intense way, but still on the spectrum, it's that reality of of a spouse that consistently thinks of themselves first and most, and you're left wondering, like, how do I deal with this? And will, ever, will anyone ever realize the weight of what it feels like trying to stay faithful in this space? Or it might be a boss that never listens. It might be a friend that continues to mistreat and to speak negatively about you. But the reality is that in the sting of living in the broken world, we all somewhere on the spectrum have dealt with that trampling of sin. And here we're encountering a woman that Jesus is bringing dignity to her story. Matthew is bringing dignity to her story by reaching down back into the story and front-loading and saying, she is a part of my family's story, the one who is trampled and left to wonder, will anyone ever know my story? Well, when we are in that position, in a place of longing, in a place of wondering, This is a space where Advent comes and speaks. And I just want to make two notes from this text and from the scriptures that I think into that moment of feeling trampled, of wondering, will anything beautiful ever grow here again? Into that space, I think there's two notes to be made from this text. The first is this. When you are in the moment of, of feeling trampled, of being trampled, The first thing is this, know that you are seen. You are seen. Here's Bathsheba wondering, will anyone ever know what I've been through? And then comes the prophet. Then comes the prophet. I've always considered Nathan's arrival on the scene and speaking to David purely about David being exposed. And it certainly was that. His sin was being called to account. But in this moment, Bathsheba's story was being told. She was seen. If you look at chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, it says this. This is right in the middle of chapter 12 as Nathan the prophet is addressing David about this hidden sin that he has participated in. It says this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now what we don't know at this point is if if Bathsheba even fully knew that David had participated in her husband's death. We were unaware of how much she knew but now she knows. If she didn't know, she now knows. And everyone else knows that she has been taken, taken rightly from her husband, taken, that she is living a story that has been thrust upon her. And all of a sudden now, 
everyone sees, everyone knows, because God says, I saw where no one else saw. I saw where power was taking advantage. It was in this moment where Bathsheba realized, I am seen by God. Like truly, in the moments where things happened in secret places and I wondered, will anyone ever know? God said, no, 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 I see you. I see you. He calls, her, he calls her specifically out and saying, look, this, this wife of Uriah and what you've done in her story in verse 9 and verse 10. This is similar to the first time in your Bible. You know the first time in the Bible, if you're just reading from the beginning, the first time that power took advantage of the powerless. Have you ever considered where that might be? It's actually a story very similar to this one. There was a young woman without power that was taken in many ways taken advantage of. Her name was Hagar. Abram and Sarai decided that she ought to bear Abram's baby and she was the servant of Hagar. And Hagar brought this servant to Abram and said, she'll bear the child that I can't bear. And she did and she bore this baby and, and then in time it caused tension between the wife of Abram, Sarai, and the, the servant that had borne his child, Hagar. And they start fighting and Abram says to Sarai, do with her whatever you please. Just holding his hands up, right? And Sarai then throws Hagar out of the house with the baby thrown out into the wilderness. And they're left out in the sun exposed. And the child is about to die, literally of starvation and exposure. And Hagar is going, what am I going to do? Right? She's calling out. In that moment, do you know what happened? This is in Genesis 16, the first time that power took advantage of the powerless. And God spoke to Hagar. It's interesting, in the whole narrative, Hagar had only been called your servant or my servant. But in Genesis 16, God shows up and he calls her Hagar. He calls her by name. And after the exchange in Genesis 16, 13, let me read you this verse. This is Hagar speaking about the exchange with God. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The name that she gives to God in that moment is El Roy, the God who sees Interestingly, her son was Ishmael, God hears, and then she encounters God and she says, oh, you're the God who sees. Listen, where you feel like right now you're languishing because of the sin of another, and you're wondering, will anybody ever know? God sees you. Like he's seen you at every moment along the way. His name is El Roy. He shows up in the wilderness to the one who feels forgotten and says, no, no, I've been there all along and I see. And isn't it amazing? It's amazing how much being seen ushers healing. It, it, it's not the only thing that brings healing, but it brings a significant amount of healing to the places of pain, does it not? Just to, at the initial knowing that it's not hidden. In a very simple elementary way, you know, in our house, we've got this three-year-old sweet Judah, 
And oftentimes, Ashton and I will be in the kitchen and we'll hear Judah in some other room, maybe because he's had an encounter with one of his brothers or because maybe he's dropped one of his Thomas the Train toys on his toe or, you know, something has happened in another room where we will hear somewhere between a whimpering and a howl, you know? And Judah will be crying, whimpering. Maybe he's laying on the floor. Maybe he's holding a toe. But he will wait in the room and whimper or howl until mom and dad comes in and sees. And oftentimes when I come in, I'll go, oh, buddy, you know, what happened to my top? It's on my toe. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. I bet that hurt. And he looks up. Yeah, I'm okay. And he gets up and he goes back to playing because the truth was the whimpering and the howling was in part the pain because the pain is real, but it also was the wondering of, is this just mine? Like, does any, is anybody going to know? Is anybody going to be with me in this? That there is something. It doesn't heal everything. Some of us are carrying very real pain that, that being seen doesn't fix it, but it is the, it's the initial reality that healing is available, that I'm not alone in this. I don't have to carry this by myself. And I need you all to know that God's character is is the God who shows up and says, I see and I'm with you. And the degree to which we begin to invite his community in, which is his hands and feet, that is him with flesh on the body of Christ is his bride, his church. There is such power. I remember I moved across the country to, to Boston after a season of some real pain and challenge and we were in seminary and nobody knew us. And I remember when the first couple kind of sat down and started asking us questions about our story and started asking about what we had been through and just getting to put words to it and having them look back and going, oh wow, that must have been tough. That must have hurt. And all of a sudden in the space where we were living, there was someone with us in it, someone who knew We didn't just feel like we were carrying it in a secret, in a hidden place. It was part of the way that healing started to break in. The first thing that I'm inviting you to consider in the places of being trampled is that you are seen. And in being seen, would you invite the very community of God into that place so that you could experience that sight of God more existentially, more viscerally. You're seen in the midst of being trampled. God sees you. But this is not all in Bathsheba's healing or in ours. The second thing and the final thing that I'd invite us to consider in the place of being trampled, in the place of longing and hoping and being sinned against, is not just that you are seen in those secret places of carrying the trouble and the the suffering of it all, but the second reality is this. Your pain Your pain, the point of pain, it connects you to redemption. It doesn't sever you from it. Let me see if I can make sense of that statement, but I just want us to hear that. Your pain connects you to redemption. It doesn't sever you from it. Here is Bathsheba trying to make sense of a very difficult journey of the ways that she has been sinned against. And and the story just keeps getting deeper and sadder, honestly. In chapter 12, verse 13 through 15, you heard it. It says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You're not gonna die. But nevertheless, because of this deed, You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. And then later in the chapter, he does in fact die. 
And all of a sudden we go, Bathsheba sinned against, her husband killed, brought into the home, and then she bears a child for nine months. She, she, she carries the child for nine months, gives birth to the child, and then within the first week, that child passes away. I mean, you talk about deep sadness and longing. This is a painful story. But interestingly, in this ugly and painful story, it's actually at the point of her pain where God begins to break in. That No doubt she's tempted. I, I, I've quoted it before, a film that I love. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it called Stranger Than Fiction. It's the story of Harold Crick and his, and his wristwatch. It's a man who is an IRS auditor and he begins to realize that his story is being penned by a living author currently. And so it's this odd story as he's making sense of there's an author right now writing my story and he's trying to understand what sort of story is the author writing. And so he goes to a, a literary scholar and he's trying to get advice and the literary scholar says, well, what you need to determine is, is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? Because all stories fall into one or the other. A tragedy at the end of the story, there's tears and there's loss. A comedy at the end of the story, there's love and there's rejoicing and there's laughter. So you gotta start making notes. And so Harold Crick spends a day and he's got a little notebook that has tragedy and comedy and he's making tally marks. And at the end of the day, he's talking to this person who's unaware of what he's doing and he looks down and the, the side on tragedy is full. And there's just a couple of little scratch marks under comedy. And he closes his book and he looks at this person he's talking to and he's going, this isn't gonna make any sense to you, but I'm afraid it's a tragedy. It's like this really poignant moment where this guy's trying to figure out what is the story that's being told. And I have to believe that it's at this moment where Bathsheba's gone. It's just tragic. My husband's gone, my baby's gone. And it's in that moment in verses 24 and 25 of this chapter that, that even this exchange, it's, it's stunning, it's surprising, it's not what we would expect because it says David comforted his wife Bathsheba, which incidentally, I don't know what all happened in that space for there to be genuine comfort in the arms of this man, but the text tells us that by this point there was. We do know that David has been publicly broken by the Spirit of God. He has repented and been transformed as a result of this exchange. I don't know what all has happened in the dynamics between he and Bathsheba. But what we know is that he comes to her and he comforts her. And he went into her and he lay with her and she bore him a son and called him Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by the prophet. In comes the prophet again. And he says that I know you've called him Solomon, but his name is Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means beloved of God. That right in the midst of her pain, at the point of greatest pain, there's this little hint of hope with this child that is born. And God says, this child's name is beloved of God. The one who's going to be on the throne. And in the midst of her pain, the light is breaking through. It's actually at the midst of, it's at the point of pain where God begins to unearth what is happening in the redemptive story. And so often it's the same in ours that when our pain is offered back to God, it's right at that point where he begins to draw the connections to redemption itself. He's saying, that's the place where you will experience my comfort, my grace, my kindness, and my hope. If you will bring me that pain, the pain will actually connect you to the redemptive story. It won't sever you from it. 
And in this particular story, this child, the beloved one, becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of the one that we have been talking about and waiting for, who is the true and beloved child. The one that upon his baptism, the father in heaven said, this is my beloved, the one in whom I'm well pleased. But for us to feel the fullness and the weight of this, let us continue to consider how Jesus is the great fulfillment. Because has anyone ever been righteously trampled, like truly, innocently trampled, like the the truly beloved one, Jesus? All of us, we've experienced being sinned against, but in one way or another, we're a contributor. Even like in the sense that we are sinful, we're not perfectly innocent, but here is one that was perfectly innocent, yet trampled by the powers that be. Trampled down in such a way that as he was bleeding and dying, everyone was wondering, could anything beautiful ever grow here again? And when he was suffering and dying, El Roy, the God who sees, turned his face away. He didn't see. He looked away. Why? He looked away so that he will never have to look away from you and your suffering. He was absorbing the full weight and the wrath of all of our sins so that in the midst of our being trampled, he doesn't look away. He looked away from the beloved one so that to us he could say, you are now my beloved. And that as he looked away and Jesus bled and died, what we see is that the redemptive story broke through in the most unexpected of ways that on the third day as the tomb was empty, Sunday came and the trampled ground became a beautiful garden. Life breaking forth in every direction. Jesus saying, one day I will make all things new and I will wipe away every tear. As we consider the story of Bathsheba, we realize that God doesn't look away and pretend like we haven't been trampled. He actually looks at it. He calls it what it is. He says, I see you in the midst of it and I'm coming for you. I will actually not just see it, I will take it into my bones and I will feel it with you and I will feel it for you so that you really can experience hope and healing and life, garden growth and beauty on the other side of what felt like a tragedy. Brothers and sisters, to those of you who've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, hear this. Your story is not a tragedy. We know how it ends. And when all is said and done, we will rejoice at the coming of the king, saying this truly is a story marked by rejoicing and love and laughter because he will come and wipe away every tear and say to every trampled one, I see you and I've come for you. Amen. Let me pray for us. In this season of Advent, God, we do long and we wait. We wait with expectation for the coming of the King who will make it all right. I pray for anyone that's watching online or in this room right now that just feels like there's something in the secret. It feels like something that has pressed them down in the ground and left them wondering if there's any hope still to be had. Holy Spirit, would you please, right now, 
soften the terrain of their hearts and help them to, to feel the warmth of your vision on them, the truth of your love for them in Jesus. God, I pray that you would comfort those who've been trampled. Bring them comfort and healing and wholeness in Jesus. And I pray that we all would live with hope and anticipation for the day that you come again to wipe away every tear and to make all things new. We, with hearts of longing in this Advent season, say, come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.